All right, well, we can celebrate uh, <clears throat> how God is at work in the life of our children and specifically what God uh, has done uh, in those who went to Central Kid Camp last week. And I specifically want to say thank you to our volunteers who gave up uh, their week uh, to be in the heat of Central Florida and uh, to invest in the lives of our children. Uh, let me say to those of you who might be visiting with us this morning that we are incredibly grateful to have you with us uh, as our guest. And if you're watching online for the first time, we're so grateful you're joining us as well. We would love to know who you are. I encourage you to text the word connect uh, to the number that you see see on the screen, and one of our Connect team members will follow up with you this week. If you're with us on campus, you can stop by one of the welcome areas on your way off campus this morning, and our team there would love to get to know you and help you learn how you can be a part of our church. Uh, also, we'll offer up another opportunity to, uh, opportunity to connect, and that's our Discover Bayshore Lunch, uh, which takes place today at 1215 in our fellowship hall. You can ask any of our uh, Connect team members for help on how to get there. Uh, we'll share a little bit about uh, who we are as a church and then give you the opportunity to ask any questions that you might have. Uh, in addition to this, I want to invite you, uh, if you're able, to come back tonight uh, at 5 o'clock for our prayer night. Uh, tonight's prayer night, we do this once a month. We don't have a really structured agenda, but we actually want to focus more on the needs uh, that exist in our church family. So if there's a, some way we can pray for you, or maybe there's something uh, that just God is burdening you with on your heart or someone, uh, I invite you to come tonight at 5 o'clock right here in the sanctuary, and we'll just have a time of prayer together. Well, uh, normally, uh, I don't really say much about uh, things that are going on uh, in our nation that might be concerned, considered political, because I just think there's a lot of noise, and I think there's something special about us gathering together and faithfully going through uh, the Word of God. However, I do feel like it would be tone deaf for me not to at least acknowledge the things that are taking place in our country right now. Uh, I am specifically referring to the Supreme Court decision on Friday. Uh, what they decided was that uh, the Constitution uh, does not protect the, the right for an abortion, and so they have put uh, the decision uh, regarding uh, abortion in the hands of people uh, and in the hands of legislators that those people elect. So I just wanna say a few things. The first thing that I wanna say is this. It is okay uh, to rejoice in what we think is good. So it's okay to rejoice when in any community or any country or any state or wherever we are, when we think a decision that is being made by a group um, is the right thing. It is okay to take joy in that. Um, and you should not feel bad about taking joy in that. Uh, another thing that I wanna say is this. If you have questions about that, um, Specifically in our community and in this church family, uh, if you have some questions uh, about it, maybe you disagree, um, you probably feel majorly like you're in the minority. And I just wanna say to you that um, I wanna offer up to you a safe space to ask those questions. Um, myself and any of our ministry team would be happy, whether it's via email, um, it's over a phone call or face-to-face, -face, uh, to talk to you about that uh, without any judgment. Um, maybe you have had an abortion or you've been affected by it and there's just some things um, you're wrestling with. Uh, we would be happy to talk to you about that uh, with respect and uh, with compassion. Uh, so you can email me. It doesn't take like seven people, you know, to an assistant, to an assistant. You email james at churchonbayshore.org and it will come directly to me 
and I would be privileged to talk with you about those things, even if we disagree on some of those things. I also wanna say this, that I think there's a tendency uh, in uh, the way a lot of Christians have viewed politics to think when something is ruled, um, that our work is done, uh, and that really the answer to our work is, um, you know, politics, policies, all those things. But the truth is, no matter what's going on around us, our work should always continue. And so I would say, uh, I, I praise Jesus for the collective efforts in our community uh, to care for those who are um, in poverty, to care for single moms, those kind of things. And we need to continue to be uh, you know, diligent about that. I would specifically draw your attention to two pregnancy centers that I'm aware of in this area that are doing a good work. Uh, one is um, the Fort Walton Beach uh, Pregnancy Center, Crisis Pregnancy Center, uh, run by Life Inc., and the other is the Crestview Pregnancy Center. And uh, these uh, pregnancy centers are there for women who are uh, struggling with what their options are and what to do. And so I would encourage you uh, to support those and uh, maybe volunteer at those uh, if you're able to at least... Uh, and again, at least to support them financially. Also, um, I, I don't think there's gonna be an unprecedented number of children uh, for adoption or foster care, but I think there should always be a waiting list of Christians who say we're here and we're on the front lines. And so maybe this is the thing that finally prompts you to say, hey, we're gonna be one of those families who say we're there uh, for when a woman is facing these decisions or we're there for the effects of uh, some of these people that are, that are having children. And so uh, we as a church have many families who are part of this and uh, we would love to walk you through those steps of what that might mean. The last thing I wanna say is this. The reality is the work of the Christian is to make disciples of Jesus Christ. And hearts only change by the power of the gospel of Jesus. And so if we really wanna see sustained uh, focus on the things of God in any community, then the call is clear on the life of the Christians, that's to share the gospel. And if we think because we belong to uh, a society that does God's will, uh, we've been obedient to God, we are misled. The call of every single one of us is to share the love of Christ and the hope of Christ and the mercy of Christ with those that God places around us. And I would specifically say this to you before you post things on social media or you have conversations with people. Part of making disciples is not just about sharing the truth, but sharing the love of Christ and how we treat people and that we reflect Christ's love. And may that guide us no matter what is being decided in the communities in which we live. And as we transition into our text today, that really is the focus of the text, is that no matter what is going on around us, our hope and our purpose should be found in the purpose and the hope that comes from Christ. I would invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Mark chapter 13, and today we will be in verses five through 19. As we continue in our series, it's the end of the world as we know it it, and I feel fine. Uh, and uh, last week, I, I referenced an article from the Baptist Faith and Message. The Baptist Faith and Message is a short summary of essential uh, teachings of the scripture, and Article 10 deals with the last things. And in Article 10 of the Baptist Faith and Message, it says this, God in his own time and in his own way will bring the world to its appropriate end. According to his promise, Jesus Christ will return personally and visibly in glory to the earth. The dead will be raised and Christ will judge all men in righteousness. The unrighteous will be consigned to hell, the place of everlasting punishment. 
the righteous in their resurrected and glorified bodies will receive their reward and will dwell forever in heaven with the Lord. So there are a lot more things that the Bible speaks to about the last days, but a lot of it is kind of hard to discern, and it's specifically hard to discern because of all the different viewpoints that are imposed upon the text uh, that we've heard and we've grown up around. But what this is saying is if we agree that Christ is the victor and Christ will return and Christ will judge us either in righteousness to spend eternal life with him or for our sins to be separated from God, then, then we can kind of agree and we can you know, have some fun debating these other things, but that's the essential thing. And so we're not gonna get into a lot of the specific nuances and beliefs about the end times, but we're rather focusing on five things that we should know about the end of the world over the course of six weeks. Last week, we talked about the fact that the world does not revolve around a place, it revolves around a person. Today, we'll talk more about how in this world you will have trouble, but don't fear, Jesus has overcome the world. We'll then go on to talk about how nothing can or will stop God's purpose for the world, how Jesus' return for his church will be obvious to all the world, and how then and there should lead the Christian to here and now, not when and where. But as we look at Mark chapter 13 today, we will see that in this world we will have trouble, but we should not be afraid. Jesus has overcome the world. I'll read our passage now. Mark chapter 13, beginning in verse five says, and Jesus began to say to them, see that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines These are but the beginning of the birth pains. But be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils and you will be beaten in synagogues and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother over to death, and father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down or enter his house to take anything out. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that it may not happen in winter. For in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of creation that God created until now and never will be. Now last week we read Mark chapter 13 verse one through four and what it shows us is that Jesus comes out of the temple and one of his disciples says to him, look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And so then he sits on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple and Peter, James, John, and Andrew asked him privately, tell us when will these things be and what will be the sign when all these things 
are about to be accomplished. So Jesus lets what he's saying about the temple passing away sit in. And so the disciples want to know, What's going to be the sign that this happens? I mean, we always are kind of looking sometimes for signs of these significant things that God says are going to take place. Like, what's the president going to be like? Or, you know, is there certain kind of weather that's going to happen? Or how many cats do there have to be in the world before God just ends it all? We, We want to know, like, when are these things going to happen? And that's what the disciples are asking here. And what Jesus is doing is not giving them signs, but he's encouraging them to be faithful. And so he does talk about things that are going to take place, but he's placing their intention on what really matters. Dr. Albert Moeller says that Jesus previously rebuked his opponents for asking for a sign. And now he warns his disciples that seeking signs will open them up to a great danger in these perilous Times. And so I want to talk a little bit about what Jesus is saying is going to happen and then talk about what we are supposed to do. So I'd like to first draw your attention to verse 14, which is really central to the events that Jesus is saying are going to take place. In verse 14, he says, but when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Now, in writing this, Mark inserts the statement, let the reader understand. This is to say to those who might be reading this, to be sure that those who might also read this or those who might hear you read this would understand what Jesus is talking about when he refers to the abomination of desolation. The abomination of desolation is something that the average person who's not familiar with the Old Testament may not understand. But it is something that the original Jewish audience would have understood. When Matthew writes to a Jewish audience, he says this, Matthew chapter 24, verse 15. So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. Daniel speaks of this specifically in chapters 8, 9, and 11. The abomination of desolation is a masculine uh, term referring to a person. That's why Jesus, uh, Jesus says he. So there's some theories about who the abomination of desolation was. Some at the time of Jesus believed that it was Antiochus Epiphanes who led for there to be pagan sacrifice in the temple, specifically the slaughtering of a pig on the altar of God in 167 B.C., Some believed that when Pilate had symbols of Caesar put up near the temple in AD 26, that he or Caesar was the abomination of desolation. Caligula had actually wanted a statue put of him in the temple. Some believed Caligula was the abomination of desolation, but Herod Agrippa dissuaded him from doing it, and he died before it could actually happen. But what Jesus is saying is that these things are not the abomination of desolation. It's something that is going to happen in the future. Now, reading this without an understanding of what would immediately take place, without the immediate context, is really, in my opinion, arrogant. When Jesus says that those in Judea will flee to the mountains, it is great liberty to say that this is talking about something else other than those who are in Judea. 
Now, if Jesus is following the prophetic model of the Old Testament, then it is quite possible that what he's doing is foretelling and foretelling. That means that he's saying this is about to immediately take place and this will have another fulfillment. A lot of the things that were talked about in the Old Testament had immediate fulfillment in the time that the Old Testament prophets lived and then had eventual fulfillment in Christ or in the work of Christ. So that's debatable. But here's what's clear. Jesus is describing what would soon take place in Jerusalem. Look at verse 15. He says, let the one who is on the housetop not go down, nor enter his house to take anything out. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that it may not happen in winter. For in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of creation that God created until now and never will be. So Jesus is giving us this picture of people moving from housetop to housetop, which in their culture was very easy to happen because they had all these flat roofs and you can move from housetop to housetop. Now you could easily go down the stairs, but Jesus is saying, um, don't do that. He's also saying, don't go back and grab your cloak, which is unthinkable because the cloak was the outer garment you would wear that would protect you from the harsh elements if you didn't live in a house. So if you were going to be trying to survive in a desert environment and you weren't even going to go back and get your cloak, that would be unthinkable. When I was a 90s kid, everybody wanted a starter jacket. And to, to, for somebody to say, hey, you can't go back and grab your jacket would be unthinkable. And so um, if you grew up, you know. If you don't, then that's okay. Um, so this is like that times a thousand where they're saying this is, this is essential. This is something we need to wear. And he's saying you don't have time to go back and get it. He's saying if you're traveling with an infant, it's going to be a challenge. So pray this doesn't happen in winter because that'll make this even more difficult. He's describing a time in the life of Israel, in the life of God's people, that would be more difficult than they've ever experienced. When Luke writes about this in Luke chapter 21, he records that Jesus says in verse 20, but when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. In AD 70, the emperor Titus would lead to the destruction of Jerusalem and to the temple. For some months, the Roman army seized Jerusalem, and as a result, food, water, supplies could not come into the city. This was a military tactic to literally starve people to death. Multiple historians like Josephus and Tacitus confirmed that this happened. The people in the city, city literally starved to death and were dehydrating. Just like Jesus said, it was a horrible day for nursing mothers because they themselves were so malnourished that they could not feed their newborn children. Josephus indicates that people became cannibals, that there was anarchy, and that there were those who literally ate dust off the ground to curb the hunger in their stomach. Upwards of a million people died in Jerusalem. It was a holocaust of that day. And by the time the Romans decided to take the city, there was no resistance. The people were dying, they were grieving, and they were hopeless. There was a command given not to destroy the temple, but there was, according to history, an accidental fire started by a soldier that destroyed some of the city and some of the temple. Now, some have suggested that these words of Jesus, which accurately describe what would take place just a few decades later, were actually written down after this took place, but 
What's interesting is that the fire isn't mentioned by Jesus at all. And so if someone were making up that Jesus said this, the fire was such a significant part that they certainly would have included the fire in what Jesus was saying. And so after the temple is caught on fire, the order is given literally to take the temple to the ground. The city of Jerusalem is laid to waste and the temple is no more after AD 70. And Jesus predicts all of this taking place. We're very self-centered. And so we tend to read the Bible and we try to make everything we read in the Bible fit exactly what is going on in our time, in our day. But what Jesus is talking about is something that would happen. And the historical evidence of this actually gives support to the reliability of the words of Jesus. Now, when we read prophecy, we have to say, uh, we have to put our bifocals on and say what goes in the near and what goes in the far. And it's very clear what goes in the near here. Is it possible that some of this applies to us in terms of events that will take place today? It is very possible. But what is most clear is what took place then and the principles of it that are still true from this for us today. And so I wanna talk through those four principles. The first is this. Don't be led astray in salvation. Don't be led astray in salvation. Verse five says that Jesus began to say to them, see that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name saying I am he and they will lead many astray. The word use of leading is that there is purpose in their direction. They're leading astray. That means away from the correct path. And they're doing this by saying, I am he. I am the Messiah. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. And they will lead many astray. Matthew says in his account, Matthew chapter 24, verse 5, many will come in my name, Jesus says, saying, I am the Christ. And they will lead many astray. Luke says in his account, chapter 21, verse eight, that Jesus said, see that you are not led astray. For many will come in my name saying, I am he, and the time is at hand. Do not go after them. Luke is saying, they're saying, here's the time of God. They're promising this reign for God's people on earth. Now, this happened. People came in these times of tribulation and said, hey, Follow me and you won't have this tribulation. And this happens today as well, where there are false messages proclaimed by people specifically when times get hard. When times get hard, people get scared and wolves rise up to lead sheep astray. And what I would tell you is the greatest test of this within Christianity, certainly there are false religions that proclaim a false gospel, but I think what's more misleading to us is when it's packaged as the way of Christ, is when people get very spiritual without getting scriptural. When people begin to get very spiritual without getting scriptural, and it opens up the door for false understandings of salvation and who Christ is. Do not be led astray in salvation. The second principle that we can apply to our lives from what Jesus is talking about here is this. Don't be alarmed by tribulation. Don't be alarmed by tribulation. Jesus talks of wars, verse seven. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. He's telling them not to be anxious. 
Don't be afraid to the point that it affects you doing what's right, doing what you're called to do in your life. And he says, when you hear of wars, and so they would hear of wars coming, that's not reason to change the direction of your life. It's a part of life. Wars are not the end of life. He also talks about earthquakes and famines. For nation, verse eight says, will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of birth pains. People tend to draw their attention to events that are happening in the world. I remember when the tsunami happened and when there's a huge hurricane season or you know, when the moon aligns in a certain way. People begin to think that means Jesus is about to come back, but this is just a part of life. He says even if these things are happening, this is just the beginning of what will happen. And so he says stay calm. Now what an astounding statement. There's gonna be wars, there's gonna be famine, there's gonna be natural disasters, rumors of nuclear war probably, but don't be alarmed, be calm. To me, you know, one of the most frustrating things is when I am calm and somebody tells me, hey, you see all that going around, you just be calm. I am calm, okay, be calm. Now I'm not calm anymore. And so, but what Jesus is saying to us here is he's saying, look, don't freak out. Don't lose sight of purpose, don't lose sight of life with all that might be coming on around you. Trust in me, don't be alarmed. When everything seems out of control, I am in control. And things like this should be expected in our lives. Pain, suffering, tribulation. We will face tribulation. If you've bought into an idea that following Christ means no tribulation, you have bought into a false message from Christ. Because that's not what Christ says. In fact, Jesus himself in John chapter 16, verse 33, says to his disciples that he, as he's warning them of things, he says, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have tribulation, but take heart, not in the fact that tribulation will end, but that I have overcome the world. It may not be easy for you but don't be alarmed by the trials of life. Don't be alarmed by tribulation. The third thing that I want us to see that is a principle for our lives, no matter where we find ourselves and what is going on in the world is this. Don't be caught off guard by persecution. Don't be caught off guard by persecution. In verse nine, Jesus says, but be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. Matthew says, Matthew chapter 24, verse 9, that Jesus says, Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. Luke says in his gospel, chapter 21, verse 12 through 15, that Jesus says, But before all this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons and you will be brought before kings and governors for my namesake. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. Settle it therefore in your minds not to meditate beforehand how to answer for I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. Jesus is saying to his disciples, there's going to be persecution. And there would be persecution of Christians. It's historically recorded, the great persecution that Christians would experience in these days. But it was all a part of God's plan for the gospel to be spread. 
Because something we must note and what Jesus is saying is what he says in verse 10. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. It's very easy to look at how the status of the church might be at any given time and forget that God's plan to advance the gospel through the church will not be stopped. What would take place in Rome through this persecution was a purifying, a refining of those who were committed to Christ and their devotion and their commitment to the gospel of Jesus Christ would be so strong that it would overtake the Roman Empire and eventually the Roman Empire would officially adopt Christianity as their nation because of the spread of the gospel in the midst of persecution and trial. And for us, we must understand that often persecution and trial is happening as a means for the gospel going forth. He says in verse 11, when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. God says, I'm doing a work in you, Christian, to advance the gospel that when I called you, I love when people say this, when God called you, he already factored in your stupidity. When God called us, he already factored in all of our weaknesses, all of our insufficiencies, all of our inadequacies, all of those things, and he says, I'm going to use you. And brother will deliver brother over to death, and father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. He says, it might get very personal sometimes the persecution you receive, and you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. Do not be caught off guard by persecution. It's almost a guarantee in the life of a committed Christian. The last principle I would say is this. Don't be drawn to lawlessness instead of adoration. Don't be drawn to lawlessness instead of adoration. When Matthew is recording what Jesus says, he, he, he shows us something that I think is important for us to think about. In Matthew chapter 24, verse nine through 13, he says that Jesus said, then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake and the many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another and many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. Don't let your love grow cold. Jesus depicts a time that's gonna come soon in the life of the Christian church in which things will get very difficult for them in Jerusalem and the surrounding areas. And as things get very difficult for them, many don't see the earthly benefit of what it means to follow Christ and they begin to live for other things and then others come and, and speak to that and promise a way of being spiritual that is not very scriptural and it leads to lawlessness. And see, lawlessness is appealing because lawlessness promises us a freedom. It promises us some of our desires to be met when we don't see being obedient to God as something that is giving us those desires. And what Jesus is saying is he's saying the only answer to lawlessness is not religion. It's love of God. Don't let your love of God grow cold because what is exalted above what we think we might have in this earth is the realization of the power and the love of God. 
And what I would encourage you today is do not begin to drift towards the lawlessness that is even sometimes masked as Christianity, but be committed to adoring Christ and treasuring Christ and obeying him out of our treasure for his mercy and his grace in our lives. But be aware that there is a message that is pulling us away from that, giving us a false hope and a false assurance of how we should be living our lives. My foster daughter is a part of um, the University of Florida Scholastic Reading Program. It's a program that is state-funded to help uh, children, uh, you know, learn to read good and do other stuff, too. If you know that reference, then, <laughs> then I love you. Um, <laughs> and she received this book as a part of that program in the mail this week. And the title of the book is We've Got the Whole World in Our Hands. And the book is, with very well-done, illustrated, beautiful pictures, is a rewriting of the song, He's Got the Whole World in Our Hands. And it says, we've got the whole world in our hands. We've got you and me in our hands. We've got the sun and the rain in our hands. We've got the moon and the stars in our hands. We've got the whole world in our hands. And this is false. Because what we see very clearly in our country today is it appeals to a unity that is shallow, continually fall short, and then ultimately divide us more. Do not buy into this lie that true peace and true unity can be found and true hope can be found apart from God. And do not buy into the lie that we've got the clouds and we've got the sun and we've got the wind and we got the rain in our hands because he has the wind and he has the rain in his hand. Even the wind and the waves obey him. And he is our hope no matter what is going on in this world around us. And even when things are closing in around us and things are getting difficult and people are coming against us, it is the treasure that we have in who Christ Jesus is that gives us hope and fuels us to live the lives that we are called to live here and now. And so as we close in response today, I just want us to meditate on Paul's words in Romans chapter eight. I'm gonna begin reading in Romans chapter eight, verse 18. And as we read these words, may the Holy Spirit speak to our hearts and may our hearts respond as he leads us today. Romans chapter eight, verse 18. Paul says, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. That the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know 
that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know, and we know, church, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Father God, May your truth, may it rule over us, may it reign over us, may it strengthen us. God, may we realize that you are so good that one day when we stand before you in fullness of your glory and grace, we won't ask questions of, to you about why you did the things the way you did it. Because when we see your beauty and your majesty, all of our doubts and all of our questions and all of our certains will be washed away because it won't be worth comparing to the glory that is revealed to us in Christ Jesus. And so God, may we just have a glimpse of that now. May the things of this earth grow strangely dim as we look at you and your glory and your grace. And God, may we know, may we know, may we know, may we know that you are for our good, that you are for us. And if we have any doubt that you are for us, may we remember Christ Jesus crucified for us, risen in victory, coming back again to rule and reign and call us sons and daughters of God. And so today, may that truth be strong in our hearts as we respond to you. In Jesus' mighty name we pray, amen. Amen.